Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Podcast Goes To, a weekly podcast where we discuss Oscar-nominated pictures. This week, the podcast goes to Field of Dreams from 1989. I'm Bob Klein, joined by my co-host, Matt DeGenero, and recurring special guest, Keith Brown. Hey, what's up, everybody? Hey. 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 You're like, hi. Hey. I'm in my summer catcalling mode where I just, anytime anyone walks by, hey. This is the second week. Is this the second time that we're discussing you in relation to cats on this show? Last week you were in a cat suit, I think. I think you're just making things up, Matt. Until this is a video (laughs) podcast, you can't just just say things about what I'm wearing. No, we were gonna put you in a cat suit. Oh, is that right? Is that right? <laughs> it seems like week to week that you will wipe your memory of what we discuss on these podcasts, which is probably for the best. Do you think I have enough brain capacity to like fit all this information in there? I'm a busy guy. <laughs> when we first started doing this, I was like, "This is so great! I'm I'm gonna learn and retain so much about these movies." And for the first five weeks or so, I was like, "I remember when all these movies." were now like i remember that spider woman was 84 and i remember that you know this was in 56 and now i'm like where are we what movie are we talking about it's (laughs) it's changed a lot in the five months or however long we've been doing this so keith yes why do you keep coming back (laughs) uh well you asked me and i'm free so uh there you go no it's been fun i mean i had never seen this movie before and um you're taking our are you taking our picture um I'm new to Instagram. I, I just got an Instagram. If anyone serious? wants to follow me, it's at barbecue chicken. Of That's... course. Of course it is. <laughs> it's like barbecue chicken only with Bob in it. Or just anyone who says barbecue from Boston. Put that on Insta later. Ooh. Yeah, I mean I would never have I wouldn't have never have in a million years watched this movie if it wasn't for you guys in this podcast tonight. I don't know if that's a compliment or a curse. <laughs> we'll find out. And for out. a movie that's so popular, too. I mean, in, in doing research for this, it's it's listed on a lot of AFI's top movie lists. And it's it's something that everyone I mentioned, I was watching it, everyone, it resonated with everybody. Like, this is one of their, this is one of their favorites or one of their go-to movies. So I'm curious then... Um, what our initial thoughts were of the movie, because you two had never seen it before. I hadn't seen it since I was a little kid. So what? What? Uh, whoever wants to go first? I I had a lot of problems with the narrative in this film, and I'm sure we'll talk about it at some point um, in, in in detail. But I I had a problem with my suspension of disbelief that this would happen so quickly. And everybody would just get on board with this. Um, so there was that that issue. Um, also, as I told you guys before this started, I had seen uh, I had gone to see uh, Kubrick's 2001: A Space Odyssey the day before in 70 millimeter in a theater, and sort of coming off of that to watch this on my TV at home, <laughs> it was not as assaulting and engaging as that movie was yesterday so because i watched this movie this morning so um you know it's it's weird because i was like oh my god two movies that i haven't really seen right in a row but i think the viewing conditions also affect it as well so i'm i I don't really care what anyone thinks about this movie i want to hear more about 2001 and so you got to see it in a theater (laughs) on 70 millimeter print this is like this is like a um a uh 
an early edition of what are you watching? Yeah, I mean, so uh, I guess Christopher Nolan supervised uh, a new release print of this movie, and I guess there's five of them circulating the country, and one of them was in Boston this month, and I have never seen this movie in its entirety. And it was really crazy because we got into the movie theater, and before the movie starts, like, this crazy music is playing while the lights are on, and you're like, is it starting? What's happening? And then the lights go out, the curtain opens up, and the movie goes... And, you know, there was an intermission, Matt, I thought of you from our, our, uh, our Tarantino uh, experience. Yeah. And, uh, the crazy thing is, is that we could not pay the parking meter long enough to sit through this whole movie. So we had to go pay the meter during the intermission because we were there for, I think over two and a half hours with the intermission. I think the intermission was like 20 minutes. I was really amazed. I mean, the sound was intense. I mean, there were parts where you wanted to plug your ears because it was so loud and crazy. Um, it was it was really awesome. I, and I think that if I'd seen this movie any other way, I would have been like, eh, whatever, you know? But the, the bigness of it all, I think, really, really affected me. Yeah, I've only seen it once, and it was on a laptop, like, sitting on my lap in bed one night. I just wish there were theaters close by that screened other things that were cool, you know, and we really yeah. have nothing. But I will be in New York City on Tuesday through Sunday, so I'm intending on hitting a lot of different places while I'm there. So we'll see nice. we'll what I get to see. Yeah. Yeah, I was about to say, <laughs> just move to New York or something. <laughs> somewhere yeah. somewhere more uh, populated than Rhode Island. It's crazy to me that this is now considered one of the best movies. Two talking about 2001 still, not... Field of Dreams. Yeah, can uh, we just talk about that next week? Let's talk about 2001. I'm, I'm, in the, <laughs> I'm in the 2001 zone. Yeah, so for something that is considered one of the best movies pretty much of all time, I think um, one of the definitive lists is Sight and Sound's 50 Greatest Films of All Time. And I think it's listed in the top 10 on that. I'll have to, uh, I'll have to look and see real quick. But it didn't even get nominated for Best Picture. It's ranked sixth of all time. It only was nominated for Best Visual Effects, which was which Stanley Kubrick won that award. Um, it was nominated for Best Director, Best Writing, and Best Art Direction. Didn't win any of those. Stanley which is more nominations than Field of Dreams got this year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. And it got but, a Best Picture. Um, Crazy. But that was the only that was the only Oscar that Stanley Kubrick Stanley Kubrick ever won was not even for directing it was for best visual effects, which is a damn shame. That's pretty crazy. You know what, Matt? It reminded me a lot of um, Tree of Life in some ways, and then it also reminded me of the new Twin Peaks in regards to how it deals with how things came to be. And so I started sort of seeing where probably these other filmmakers were inspired by by this in some way. I mean, maybe I'm totally making this up, but I sort of feel like I could start connecting this to other things. I mean, he was an extremely influential director and he still continues to be to this day. I mean, just the fact that, you know, Christopher Nolan, who's one of the more popular directors of our time today, is is going back and revisiting 2001 it says it speaks volumes to what his work has has done for cinema over the decades since since it's come out. Um, 2001. When did that When did that come out? That had to be the 60s, 2001. right? 68. Oh, it didn't come out in 2001. 
I thought it was like <laughs> Lee Daniels the Butler. You just know who made the movie in the title. I thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, but I see what you mean about Tree of Life because it was more of some of a feeling than it was a, a narrative, right? I mean, there's very little dialogue. Yeah, and then there's these these parts that sort of have feelings in them or you're like well i don't really understand what's happening here but then you have this sort of narrative in the middle of all this you know with hal and the and the the astronauts and you know all that stuff so yeah it was it was a really cool experience so then to go from that to this is that to this on a dvd i wasn't even watching this in hd uh yeah well listen i went to the uri library and this is what they had so uh (laughs) shout out to the uri library (laughs) i went there like twice i would go there and be creeped oh yeah i had to take my uri 101 classes there to get their library cards as like part of the uri 101 (laughs) seminar yeah oh yeah you had to like earn your library card by going to some sort of meeting where they bore the hell out of you right yeah you go to the library and they take your student id and turn it into a library card and then they tell you all of the things that are available at the library including that basement where they have like final cut pro on a computer that you can edit at but no one ever did i just know that i never wanted to go into that basement ever again it was so creepy <laughs> what are you drinking who me yeah um so i'm drinking out of a big cowboy boot is that from, because we're from reno um, okay so i was gonna make a big jack and coke and then i pour all the jack in there like a lot up to like i don't know the achilles tendon and then i was like where'd all the coke go my roommate's like i drank all the coke and i was like yo i thought you only drink water he's like yeah but i was in a coke mood so i poured some champagne in there and some lemonade some raspberry lemonade it's not too good. <laughs> well, j- because it's in a giant boot, I think it makes it all the better. Is that Mickey Gillies? Is that Mickey Gillies restaurant? It's just called Gillies. Gillies at the Nugget in Sparks, Nevada. Interesting. Fun story about Sparks, Nevada. Oh, no. We don't have time for that. We're in the middle of a podcast. <laughs> we were all uh, eating at this restaurant, Gillies, and... Uh, my friend Tom had a little too much to drink, and he threw up at the dinner table. <laughs> oh, that's disgusting. And, and then my friend who's sitting next to him is like, oh, I'm done. Lost my appetite. And then Tom is yelling at him like, what? What's your problem? <laughs> I just choked on my dinner. And I was like, no, you didn't. <laughs> that's like I was on a, on a, uh, a smooth water rafting trip over the weekend in the Glen Canyon, and... It was uh, a, a beautiful experience, but I was sitting next to this fucking kid who didn't have any personal space, like personal boundaries awareness. And he was like brushing up against me and nudging me and I hate kids to begin with and I hate being nudged. So it was like double whammy. So I'm like, all right, you know what? I can't sit next to this brat anymore. So I moved to the other side of the raft and there's this other kid and he proceeds to puke everywhere just everywhere it's like oh my god this is the most disgusting thing but it was a beautiful day so a little puke never hurt anybody wow but feel the dreams (laughs) speaking speaking of puke (laughs) that's a good analogy because this movie was puke but yeah field of field of dreams 
is about some dude that Kevin Cosner plays whose name escapes me because it was uninteresting. But he hears voices on his cornfield and decides to make a baseball field and travel across the country with James Earl Jones. And I don't know. Is that what it was about? Thank you. Thank you, Bob. <laughs> that was that was a wonderful plot summary. It's a, a guy named Ray Con, uh, Kinsella. Kinsella. He's a, a, a novice Iowa farmer living with his wife, Annie, and his daughter, Karen. Um, he has a passion for baseball that he got from his father, uh, who he had a terrible relationship with. And uh, one day he hears a voice in his field, which is never explained, and it tells him to build a baseball diamond in his cornfield. So he sacrifices his cornfield to build this baseball diamond, and the ghosts of the Chicago Black Sox, including Shoeless Joe Black Jackson. Black Sox? Play- yeah, isn't the, the Black white, Sox. Isn't the White Sox? So, Bob, you were able to catch Pokemon today, but you didn't research the Chicago Black Sox. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. I, um, at least I walk outside. It, this game's good for me. <laughs> uh, the Chicago White Sox, who were known as the Black Sox in 1919 because they threw the World Series, they appear in the field to play baseball again. Um, I guess they're ghosts, uh, but the voice isn't done with Kevin Costner. Tells him to go find this James Earl Jones character, Terrence Mann, um, and he does end up embarking on some sort of cross-country road trip with James Earl Jones, where they discover another baseball player whose only wish is to have one at-bat. So that ghost comes and has one at-bat, and that ghost somehow saves Kevin Costner's daughter who's choking on a hot dog and then James <laughs> and the mother Jones. and the crazy thing about that is the mother is not even that upset that her daughter is like half dead on the ground she's half just like somebody ground. call the ambulance you know okay yeah, go ahead yeah. sorry so okay so we're quickly going through the whole plot we're almost at the end now so then James or then at that point ever the the mean brother who was trying to who's foreclosing on the the farm trying to take the farm away suddenly sees all the ghosts and uh the farm is saved because he sees the ghosts ghosts invite james earl jones into the cornfield at which point he walks as he's giggling into the cornfield and disappears and (laughs) that is the plot of field of dreams so So this was the most ridiculous movie I've ever seen. It was just the most ridiculous movie I've ever seen. Like, it made no sense. There was, like, no purpose to any of it. It was insane. Just whoa, insane. Whoa, whoa. Well, don't go that far, because there was there was purpose to it. So, like, if you're going to insult it, at least insult it for, like, for the but, right reasons. Go there ahead. But, Matt, you, Matt, you left out the whole thing where supposedly it's so effective with people is, is the exchange between Kevin Costner's character and his dad at the end of the movie. Right. And okay, so, so that the, is the purpose. But. Right. So the whole, the whole thing going on here is that like he had this problem with his dad. It like was over baseball. And at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, his dad, his younger dad appears on the field and he gets to play catch with him, which I did do. I, I did watch an hour long documentary on the making of the movie from script to screen that was on the 
uh, standard definition DVD that I watched this movie on. And it was and it was really interesting because they said in the test screenings that that Kevin Costner never really uh, said that it was his dad. It was just heavily implied and when they first screened it the audience was like who is that man and they were like really you don't know what's the dad so they had to dub a line in where he says hey dad or something like that when it's not i on thought him. that sounded says, weird yeah so that line was added after the fact oh it's just like a movie i made for the 48 hour film projects last year where we just added a line <laughs> but that's ridiculous because there's another line where she says introduce him to his granddaughter like isn't that enough i guess not in in the in this documentary they were really surprised that the audience did not get it oh my god yeah um that's why they have test screenings (laughs) yeah yeah good good idea well, so, okay, so starting from the beginning, I totally agree with you, Keith, that the suspension of disbelief was, was extremely difficult. Like, I, I first, I, I don't have a problem with, with uh, the fantasy element of movies. That, that, that doesn't really bother me. I like Lord of the Rings and Star Wars and all that stuff. Um, but, yeah, just the fact that they, they're totally accepting of this reality as if it were commonplace, that... There's, there was never any sort of like moment where they're in shock or they're in awe or they're in doubt. It just sort of is. <laughs> and that, that really bothered me. Well, you know what else I found really? And first of all, it takes 13 minutes for him to decide to build this field in the middle of his cornfield. It only takes 13 minutes, right? Um, again, oh, I also watched all the deleted scenes that were on the DVD as well. And there were a lot of scenes that they cut out of the movie where Costner goes to a doctor and gets his hearing tested and he goes into town to buy the supplies and he's like questioned. And so they said that they cut out, they shot all this stuff, but they cut it all out to move it along. But I sort of felt like that those scenes actually would have probably made me believe it better. Like it, it would have given more reality to the situation that he just didn't hear a voice in the field and say, all right, I'm just going to cut down all this corn and build a baseball field for nobody. Or you know. if, or even if, even if there was something, some sort of throwaway line where it was like, you know, I don't really, I don't really believe in this voice, but it sort of gave me the idea that maybe this would be a fun thing to do, have a baseball field, like, but just the fact that his reasoning was that he believed if he built a baseball field, a ghost would appear, and there was no sense of him being crazy. Well, really. that's that's what I don't get is, is he hears the voice, it's like what if 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 you build it, they will come or he will come or whatever. He will come. Yeah. One of the more famous lines, super famous line. I didn't even know what it was from until I watched this movie. He's like, Oh, I guess that's what it's from. But (laughs) all of a sudden, yeah, he hears the voice a few times. Then he like sees a vision of a baseball field. And then he tells his daughter who's going to show up. I was like, when did they say who was going to show up? That's what I, he like insinuate. He, he gets all this information without having the information throughout the movie well he ends up being wrong because he thought that the he was was shoeless joe jackson when it wasn't yeah but he still showed up which is kind of (laughs) weird yeah yeah, it's like he was wrong when he was also right but it's also like this long burn of a ride where it's like if you build it he will come when the first part of the movie is just like him explaining his relationship with his dad it's like clearly this movie is about his dad he just 
explained the history of his dad for the first five minutes of the movie and then you never see the dad the whole movie so obviously at the end like <laughs> it's gonna come back to his dad so but his but his primary his primary conflict is that he doesn't want to become his dad and he's worried that if he doesn't take any chances in his life and he's just as a farmer then that's what he'll become is his is his dad so i think a part of him feels like hey if i build this field i'm doing something a little bit different but but there aren't there aren't really a lot of obstacles to this field building because it's like he tells his wife and she's just like, all right, that sounds crazy, but it's fine. You know what I mean? Where she where they know they know that it will be affecting their livelihood. And I feel like she I, I was expecting more, um, you know, uh, kickback from her in regards to how this would be sort of like an obstacle they would need to overcome you know, but she agrees so quickly. I, I it just the th- that's where I was I felt really hard to buy into the story is that everything happens so fast without any sort of pushback from any other characters. And again, there is a lot of that from the townspeople in the scenes that they cut out of the movie. Yeah, that wife she wins most supportive wife award <laughs> for sure. She just like in the beginning she's like, I think you're crazy, but do whatever the hell you want because. I love you. And it's like, she's so supportive. Even when they're about to like, like, you know, have to give their farm to the bank. He's on the phone and she's like, follow your dreams. You're great. Don't worry about what's going on at home. <laughs> so ridiculous. Yeah. So like, what was her reasoning behind being so supportive of such a delusion? I mean, I guess she sees the ghosts too. So at that point, it's sort of hard well, to but, be but- like, but you would think that she would have a little bit more opposition before Shoeless Joe shows up, right? Yeah. And clearly the field has been up and running for a while because they show them at Christmas and all he's doing is looking out the window waiting for Shoeless Joe. They had to have, they probably had to have the power, the electricity on that house all rewired. How are they putting up all those lights? Not only that, but, like, they're poor, and when he shows up later in the movie with um, James Earl Jones at night, the lights in the field are on, even though there's no one there. I'm like, you are wasting so much electricity. I was like, so, uh, like, again, I'm totally cool with the fantasy elements. It was just how they were implemented was just ridiculous. Yeah, and I found, like, they have the movie, you know, he he decides he wants to build the field, and then like the montage scene of him building the field. And there's never a moment of like, how are we going to pay for this? Or we're dipping into the savings. They never show that. And then afterwards, they keep referring to it like, oh, we spent all our money on the field. <laughs> it's like, you never really told us that while you were making it. I felt like we were watching Lilies of the Field, though. It's like, he's building his chapel. The movie's about to be over. Nope. There's a lot more movie left. Damn it. Well, the funny thing is, again, in the scenes they cut out, there's a lot to do about money. Like they go to the store and they comment on how much it's costing or they go to the lumber yard and they're just like, oh, my God, it's like another eleven thousand dollars or whatever. You know what I mean? So there's that that I understand why they wanted to cut that stuff out to move sort of like the progress and not slow things down. But again, without those checks of reality in there, I think that's where I was sort of like, huh? You know, and yet the movie is so popular. So what? What about the movie? So I guess it did resonate with people on a certain level. Yeah. So they basically said that like this is the movie that makes all men cry. So did you cry? 
I cry a lot in movies. I didn't come close to crying in this one. There is no, there's no scene that that made me want to cry. It's, I mean, I, mean, I really hate this that, movie. <laughs> this movie. They're really saying that it's it. at the end when he asks his father to play ball with him. That's when everybody starts to. James Earl Jones said he cried. I don't give a fuck about his playing catch with his dead dad. Like, he's so I I got choked up. Did you really? But I, I, yeah, well, I just got back from a week long trip with my dad, so it was like. And did you play catch? No, he didn't. But it brought me you back sh- to the. But you should have. But then, then because this is what it is. It's that idea of like I should have when I could have. I think is what resonates with people. Like, hey, like I won't always. Whoever it is in your life that's special to you, I won't always have this opportunity to do this thing. Or maybe it's someone who's already gone, and you're like. I wish I had had the opportunity to do that thing. I think I think what resonates with them is like that idea of like regret and what if you had that moment back in order to reconcile that. Which really is the ending of Annie Hall, which made me a little bit teary, but this did not get me. Plus, first of all, I don't think I ever have or did I want to play catch with my father in any way, shape, or form. Why does maybe that not surprise a, me? <laughs> maybe throw a ball at him, but not with him. So, I, you know, I, you know, I, and, and I can see how that could cause that emotion but um you know i don't know the the lead up to it now again this was this 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 script was adapted from a book and in the book the dad shows up at the beginning of the story again this 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 little documentary that i watched was really really interesting it made me appreciate the film a little bit more than just watching it on its own it's just a whole movie just so some guy can play catch with his dead dad it's just like why should I care? I, I just like I, I just don't get it. I really don't. Like he's a grown ass man. His dad's been dead for years. Like, I'm sorry, get over it. You have your you have your daughter, you have your whole family. Play catch with her. You know, like move on. I it just it just doesn't Just don't, don't give it. her a hot dog. Was she even eating a hot dog before that scene? He was she was eating a hot <laughs> okay. dog. Okay. It looked like they like the dude accidentally pushed her off the bleachers and she just automatically was like unconscious. She was dead, yeah. She was dead. And then a hot dog comes out of her. I was like, was she eating a hot dog right before the scene? <laughs> it was a ghost hot dog. <laughs> well, you, baseball, the only other thing I learned is baseball and hot dogs go together. Uh, yeah, apple pie and her Chevrolet. Um, so, yeah, it was based on a book called Shoeless Joe. And they wanted to name the movie Shoeless Joe, but um, they, the studio pressured them to change it to Field of Dreams. Uh, which the director did not want. Um, this guy, Phil Alden Robinson, did not want. He wanted to name it Shoeless Joe. And ironically, the author of Shoeless Joe, W.P. Kinsella, revealed later that he actually wanted to name the book The Dream Field. Dream Field, yeah. <laughs> but, the, but the publishers pushed him to change it to Shoeless Joe, so it's kind of ironic. Yeah, and they said that Shoeless Joe sounded like either Kevin Costner didn't dress well or he was homeless. They thought, Kev- people thought Kevin Costner it was a guy named Joe who didn't have shoes. <laughs> yeah, I can see where maybe they'd go with something a little more inspirational and uh, kind of like ha- uh, Hallmark channel sounding. So, okay, so he builds this field. He's able to build like a state-of-the-art field in no time at all. And Shoeless Joe arrives, and Shoeless Joe is played by none other than Ray Liotta. So a fun fact about Ray Liotta is that he needs cue cards to read uh, all of his lines when he's acting. He is a complete hack. 
<laughs> That's interesting. I didn't know that. We yes. call those hackers. Yeah, so what's interesting about Ray Liotta is he always will play important roles like Shoeless Joe in this, but he doesn't end up having many lines, if you notice. Yeah, a lot of a lot of the movies, him just like making a face at people instead of talking. It was like, he could have lines here. He really could. And I'm sure there were lines there and they cut him. Why the hell did they cast a guy like that? I don't understand. He's not that good. They talked about casting him because of his, like, emoting as an actor. The fact that he had to sort of look a certain way and respond a certain way. And they had seen him seen him in something wild um, uh, before that. And that's, that's why they, that's why they uh, cast him. And he's also in Observe and Report, the, <laughs> the mall cop movie starring Seth Rogen. <laughs> but we won't go there. <laughs> but... Here's somewhere we are going, Matt. Sorry to cut you off, but it is time to pick our decade for next week's show. Okay. Well, we got the 80s this week, and it backfired on us, apparently. So something tells me we're going to go somewhere earlier. Oh, no, it is the 80s again. That's my it's the 80s. <laughs> so we'll be back in the 80s next week it'll be our third 1980s movie i feel like we're stuck in the 80s like we were stuck in the 50s but i'm i'm much happier in the the 80s. celebrating in the background <laughs> <laughs> so all right we'll take a quick and next and week we'll... the podcast goes to 80s birthday party movie <laughs> i'm not going to continue on this podcast if you keep throwing my unfinished movie in my face oh you didn't finish it i thought you just didn't want to show us I should totally have you finish it. But continue with your podcast. (laughs) (laughs) We'll take a quick break and we'll come right back. We built this city. We built this city on rock and roll. We built this city. We built this city on rock and We are back here on the podcast goes to talking about 1989's Field of Dreams, a Best Picture nominated picture, which several people in our picture did not particularly enjoy. So that's a lot of pictures, Matt. I I, I will say <laughs> this is I I was not enjoying the first third of the movie, but then when James Earl Jones comes in, I I was entertained. So what was the purpose of james earl jones character though so so james earl jones plays this terrence Mann guy who is super passionate about baseball but doesn't want to admit it i think it was supposed to be i think a little bit it was supposed to be that kevin costner's character was saving all these other characters while he was going on his journey so i guess james earl jones wanted to Go and be a ghost baseball writer? Is that the is that the vibe you got, Keith? Well, I know that in the book it's actually JD Salinger he goes to find. And so they talked about how they didn't wanna when they were adapting this to a screenplay, they didn't want to um 
put a real person into this fictional world because they well i think jd salinger wanted to like sue if they were going to do that oh that's interesting because they didn't they didn't talk about that they just said they decided to not do that i want to sue jd salinger so there's that (laughs) (laughs) all right so i think uh now i forgot what the question was though um james earl terrence man's purpose yeah he had no oh yeah well the other thing i didn't and and maybe you can clear this up and then i can sort of think about this more but like when he goes into the field does he die when he goes into the cornfield i thought he was dead the whole time so it's again it's it's very it's it gets very confusing who can see the ghosts when he goes to boston he ends up back in 1972 at some point when he meets the doctor and then the doctor is young when they pick him up in the Volkswagen but then when he decides to step off the field he ages but he's still but from the past he's, <laughs> but he's still dead i that's where i was like you know again like what you were saying i i can buy into the fantasy element but when i can't make sense of the events in the world that I'm trying to buy into, that's right. when it, I lose it. Yeah, you need yeah. to know the rules. Like that, That's it. You, you, you establish the rules and then you don't break them. But here, they never really establish them in the first place. Yeah, so I... I mean, I, lo- I love James Earl Jones, and I think he added something to this movie, but his character, I, I just don't see, like, where... Like, what the purpose was. Like, in the middle of that ridiculous public school like argument meeting about the book kevin costner's character just decides to like oh this is the guy i have to find obviously because he was brought up at this meeting i'm sitting at and then he drives across the country to find him and take him to a baseball game it like it didn't make any sense to me not only that but then at the baseball game all all they get is like their next task which James Earl Jones also doesn't help them complete because he drives all that way with them. But then it's the, it's the Ray character that ends up time traveling back to help that guy who only had one at bat. <laughs> like, like he played major league baseball for one, for one day. Like I didn't, I didn't get why we were saving that guy. Yeah, and he already, like, as an old man, even though he's dead, but they travel a little back in time, it's like, he's clearly happy. <laughs> yeah, he's like, well, I guess if I had one wish, I'd go and That's play like, baseball again. That's like, all this again. supernatural stuff is happening, and there's, like, some higher power at work whispering shit in fields and putting weird messages <laughs> on scoreboards to, like, ease some dude's pain that are already dead that, like, want to play some baseball. It just like it's so like so much work and so much supernatural power is going into something like so little and something I don't like having a catch with your dead dad. I'm sorry, dude. Your dad's been dead for like 40 years or whatever. Like, can't these supernatural powers like I don't know feed the children? (laughs) It's it's so funny because hearing you explain it makes me think of Donnie Darko and how this that weird thing starts coming out of people's chests to sort of make them go a certain way you know um <laughs> but yet he was just he was just saving all mankind yeah it, it sort of made me think of the bishop's wife with the angel who's just there to sort of make the guy who's rich and has a hot wife a little bit nicer <laughs> that was the angel's purpose of the movie 
it's like, don't angels have something better to do? And it's the same, it's the same thing here. And I wasn't clear on, like, why, um, so the brother of the wife doesn't see the ghosts, but everyone else does? Right, that confused me as well. Like, why doesn't he see them? Because, is it that he didn't believe in them? Because if that's the case, I don't think that, I think that a few people didn't believe in them and still saw the ghosts. But then, as soon as the ghost saves the girl, he sees them. So I'm, I was very confused by that. Like, what are the rules of these ghosts? <laughs> and he doesn't even say, oh my God, I see these ghosts and I didn't see them before or something. He just references that there's people on the baseball field. Like, when did yeah, these like, guys get there? <laughs> yeah, he's like, where'd these baseball players come from? And I'm also confused as to how... So in, the, in like the climactic scene, the brother ends up lifting the daughter... And then someone wrestles the daughter out of his hand and she ends up falling off the bleachers where she then almost chokes to death on a hot dog. But it's like <laughs> no one, no one like goes up to her and like, it like notices that there's, that she's choking. I, I was very confused. It's like, it looked like her neck was snapped. It didn't look like she was choking. Normally when you fall off something and you're all of a sudden unresponsive, it's usually like, oh, they're unconscious. They like hit their head. And it was yeah, like, no. it wasn't like she was coughing and like out of breath. Like, it just made no sense to me. But that doctor, and there was no sense of urgency that I, I just, I, that moment was weird to me because there was no sense of urgency that this child was injured and the parents did not seem nearly as upset as I would think they would be. And she fell in the wow. grass like a foot. <laughs> I thought she was going to die and become a baseball player. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think maybe they weren't worried because they were like, oh, she'll just go to the baseball field now and we'll still be able to hang out. <laughs> field of Dreams 2, Karen at bat. Oh. <laughs> wow. But then the ghost like saves that. her? And I'm like, what do, What kind of influence do the ghosts have on this real world? And then same thing, like you said, was Terrence Mann a ghost? And does he die when he goes into the field? Because then he's like, oh, I'm going to write such a good article about this. I'm like, what? That's what, that's what I don't get. It's like, and then after all this, Kevin Costner has like a little hissy fit at the, <laughs> he's like, why can't I go with you? And it's like, dude, they like, they're dead and they come from this mysterious place. Obviously, it's like where dead people are. You don't want to go there. How stupid are you? You don't even know what you want. You're just dumb and listen to voices in a field and do whatever for no reason at all. <laughs> That's ruthless, Bob. No, it's true, though, because at the end, he's he's yelling at Shoeless Joe. He's like, I did this all, and I don't get anything out of it. And I was like, he's like, oh, you did this for you? And I was like, <laughs> but, like, what did he do this all for? No reason. I, it's just, like, it doesn't make any sense to me. He doesn't realize it's about his dad till the very end. I just don't get it. Yeah, it seemed like people were driven by some sort of, like, higher power without cause it without reason and even uh even karen the daughter is like oh people people will come to people will basically pay good money to come and play on this field and they won't even know why they're doing it they'll just show up so it's almost like this power is like manipulating people to come to this field to pay money to this family well, at first I thought that the way they were going to get out of debt was to have people come watch these players play this game. Yeah. But then I was like, but then they can't see them. So then how does that work? 
And then if you see them, how do you immediately know that they're ghosts? Like, I wouldn't know what these people look like. Well, I have a surprise for both of you guys. I just booked us three flights to Dyersville, Iowa, where we're going to go to the historic movie site of Field of Dreams. Um, There's a gift shop. And you can learn about Shoeless Joe and you can send a picturesque postcard to a friend, it says, because it is it is not heaven, uh, but it's Iowa. So you can actually go to where the movie was shot. Uh, and so we're going next week. Uh, we're going next Wonderful. Sunday. No, I'm just joking. I didn't buy this ticket. Oh, but, but you we'll can't, do a live you can podcast from the middle of the field. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? <laughs> So one thing that I found interesting when they were when they were making the field of dreams is that they had to grow the corn and the corn wasn't growing fast enough. So they had to like jumpstart the corn growing. I don't understand why there's so many fields that they they purposefully mow the fields to make corn field uh, corn mazes and whatnot. Like, why so they want they wanted they when they were. Uh location scouting for the movie they needed to make sure that the the farmhouse was secluded in a way where no one would question the fact that other people would be sort of commenting on what Kevin Costner was doing on a daily basis so they wanted to be secluded so they found this house and they actually renovated the whole thing and added the porch because the porch was written in the book and then, like you said, the the corn wasn't growing, so they had to bring in all this water while everybody else's crops in the area were dying that year because Iowa had this huge drought. And then when they finally got rid of the corn to put in the field and part of the movie, they realized that the sod wasn't taking, so they actually had to paint the sod green um, <laughs> because it was dead grass. Oh, wow. Seems like a lot of work. Sounds like a field of nightmares. <laughs> the well, sequel. Well, speaking of... Speaking, yeah, speaking of cornfields and the horror sequels, I um, happened to do a little bit of research here to try and find the top uh, movies that take place in cornfields. So obviously, <laughs> Fields of Dreams, or whatever it's called, Field of Dreams is a very popular one. But what about 2002's Signs? I was just about to say, Shyamalan. yeah, I was thinking, I was thinking Signs and Scary Movie 3. Okay. Which makes fun of signs. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what about 1996's Twister (laughs) with Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt? Have you guys seen that one? Oh, that's a classic. I've seen that a hundred times. That cow still haunts my dreams. One day it's going to come down and you better watch yourself. I just just (laughs) hope that I'm not there. The special effects in that were so good for the time. Were they though? Yeah, they were. I think they were. so. Well, so not as good recently, as the more recent Sharknado films, which are like twisters with sharks in them. That's true. What Sharknado are we on now? I think five or six. Wow. I'm really good well, at the here's... slot machines, the Sharknado slot machines. I hit the Tara <laughs> Reed bonus. There are so many Tara Reeds on the screen. It was dope. I don't um, understand how you can be good at a slot machine. I'm good at... Sharknado slot machines, Britney Spears slot machines, Ghostbusters slot machines in the Vegas airport, and Breaking Bad slot machines. Oh yeah, you got the goo bonus on the. Yeah, the it was like one. I was literally on the like waiting for my plane in the airport in Vegas, and I was like, I only have fifty dollars left to my name. Like that's it. Credit cards are full, and I put that fifty dollars in, and three hundred fifty dollars later, 
Ghostbusters, yeah! Ghostbuster goo! Only good thing about that franchise. <laughs> Speaking of movies that make Bob cry, what about the cornfield in 2014's Interstellar? Ooh, I see what you did there, Matt. There were <laughs> cornfields, I'll give you that. Yeah, there's the scene where he's chasing the drone through the cornfield and that awesome Hans Zimmer music is playing. Yeah, and that same music plays while he's chasing the spaceship that Matt Damon blew up. <laughs> because Matt Damon. there's only like three songs in that movie <laughs> and they just repeat them over and over again. <laughs> I've listened to that whole soundtrack several times. It's incredible. So really, and yeah. it did not win that year for best original song do you, or uh, music. Do you know what won original score that year? No. Uh, Grand Budapest Hotel. Oh. Yeah. Uh, weird. I'm not entirely sure that I... Was that, um, I think that was Desplat that did that, right? Oh, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Display. Yeah. That was also a really good score, but It was. I remember time, that year yeah. I listened to all of them on Spotify. That was a really good year. It was like, what was it? Imitation Game was one of them. Um, Theory of Everything was one of them. Star Wars or something. Oh, maybe. 2014? Yeah. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I, I think they just nominated Star Wars again, which is bullshit, but... <laughs> <laughs> There's also a movie called The Girl in the Cornfield. Ooh, I want to see that one. Let's play a game called Guess the Plot. Go ahead, Bob. <laughs> Guess the plot of The Girl in the Cornfield. <laughs> My mind only goes horrible places, Matt. <laughs> Keith, guess the plot of Girl in the Cornfield. Sue is allergic to corn and gluten, and has to run out of her house because a murderer is coming into her bedroom and the only place she can hide is the cornfields and then she breaks out into a rash i really don't know <laughs> that was well, that was better than any pitch i ever heard in any of your what, what, that's that's just that's my next movie three um, young women are on the road around midnight when a woman in a white dress stumbles in front of the car after impacts, they get out to help, but she has vanished, leaving a trail of blood that goes deep into a cornfield. That night, they're terrorized by an unseen presence. <laughs> what the hell? And then she chokes on a hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> what? After falling off of bleachers? <laughs> it reminds me I of, like... I wonder if they're haunted by Shoeless Joe. It kind of reminds me of those, like, random logline generators. You ever got... You guys ever do those? Online? Yeah, we did them on this podcast. Did we really? When? Yeah. So talking a little bit about the Academy Awards for that year, Driving Miss Daisy won Best Picture, so beat out Field of Dreams. And Woody Allen was nominated again for Best Director for his film. Do you know which film it was, Keith, in 1989? Crimes and Misdemeanors? Yes. Yep. That is incredible. But he lost to Oliver Stone for Born on the Fourth of July. So this was an interesting year. So Field of Dreams was only nominated for three. It was nominated for writing and music and best picture. How does something that's not nominated for any directing or acting or like anything else get nominated for best picture? It's because of this last moment. I'm telling you. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, because if you take that moment away, the movie is, is pretty low quality. I will say... I I did like a lot of the cam like the shots. I thought all that like uh, magic hour stuff on the baseball field looked beautiful. 
the colors. Yeah, they were talked really about nice. how hard how hard that was to shoot because there were so many shots they were trying to get in Magic Hour, and they would be waiting and waiting and waiting and so have like you know fifteen minutes. It looked like a lot of the movie they'd shoot the baseball field at Magic Hour, and then they cut to the reverse shot of Kevin Costner sitting on the bleachers, and it was not Magic Hour. It was almost like they shot some of the same scene in the middle of the day. Yeah. Just but like, weirdly I'm... enough, Magic Johnson was in the shot. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't see that one coming. <laughs> Money! Money is the cure! Sorry, that's a South Park episode. Anyway, Magic Johnson well, alive. <laughs> so, Driving Miss Daisy beat out Field of Dreams for Best Adapted Screenplay, and then it was beat out in the uh, Best Original Score by The Little Mermaid. Under the sea, under the sea. Another fantasy <laughs> film of that year. Yeah. Indiana so, Jones won best sound effects, Last Crusade. I wish there was a way to find out like what movies I actually went to go see in 1989. If I told you which movies came out, would you be able to remember if you went to see them in theaters? Yeah, I probably would. We so, might as well play that game anyway, because we all hated this movie, or I hated this movie. It seemed like you guys had some problems with it. I'm curious to see like what was that year and what should have won, you know, been nominated for best picture instead of this. Well, listen, I don't want to go so far to say I hated it, even though like I really have no interest in baseball. I have no interest in the actress who played the wife. Sort of annoyed the crap out of me. Um, <laughs> she reminded I, me of the, uh, that woman from Cheers, the older, the older woman from Cheers. Kirst- Kirstie Alley. Uh, no, you're talking about uh, Danny DeVito's wife there. Yes. Uh, Rita, Rhea Perlman. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I just, because it was nominated for an Academy Award, I think I was expecting something of much higher caliber than what I saw. Do you know what I mean? If I had seen yeah, it yeah, that's in a, any that's other context, assessment. I probably would have said, oh, all right, whatever, 89, blah, blah, blah. But like, because it was a Best Picture nominee, I was sort of a little like, really? But yeah. Well, this is, is the is. second week in a row now where we're talking about a Best Picture nominee that, um, and last week, a winner, where the subject matter wasn't really of cultural importance, right? Like, nowadays, to get nominated for Best Picture, it sort of needs to address a social topic of some sort. Well, you're right. I feel like that nowadays, when the movies are nominated for Best Picture, a, a, a large majority of them are true stories right even the last year or two years like a lot of the things that are nominated are you know winston movies about winston churchill um uh the movie the post about uh the new york times like all these things that are sort of you know real things and this is as far as that from you then you can get yeah i mean the last two the last two years winners though were were completely fictional though well i guess I guess Moonlight wasn't completely fictional, but it was it was it wasn't a true story. It was fiction, but it still was about something of of significance. Of yeah. significant. They kind of they kind of had that a little here, where they were kind of like super progressive for their Iowa town, and they're at the school meeting talking like, "Hey, why are you burning books?" You know, like love. Oh yeah, <laughs> I did like that scene. They kind of they kind of had some of that stuff going on. Right, but it wasn't a three billboards. Like, there wasn't, like, she was raped and murdered. Like, that wasn't that kind of movie. I guess. You know? I guess there's that. It's just the the Academy Awards, like, the best picture movies, 
the last like few years have been so good. <laughs> this movie was not that. <laughs> yeah, and that's the th- that's the thing that I'm realizing now is you know so I I got Movie Pass around Oscar season and I was using it to see all these movies and I was going like every day or every other day and like we were seeing movie upon movie that were really strong in terms of their performance and quality and cinematography and all this stuff. And then, you know, now you say, I want to go to the movies and what is playing? It's like tag. Like that's the, those are your choices. (laughs) Yeah. Although I'm really excited for uncle drew. Really excited. (laughs) Oh, come on. Well, in the eighties, uh, it's not like it is today where the top 10 movies were all sequels or remakes, but it was pretty close. We have several sequels in the top 10 back to the future. Part two is number six on this list of top grossing movies. Saw that in the theater. Okay. We also have ghostbusters too. Saw that in the theater. And finally we have lethal weapon two, number three. Uh, Wait, Lethal Weapon number three? Oh, no, it's movie number three. Lethal Weapon two. Lethal Weapon two. Okay. Yeah. So the top grossing movie of that year was Batman. So I guess that's a remake. With Michael right? Keaton? It, yes, it was the Tim... Ja- no, it was, uh, yeah, the Tim Burton, uh, that, Jack Nicholson, Michael Keaton. And that won, saw, a, that won an that Academy the Award. It won... What was it? Uh production design or something like that oh wow yeah batman won that year (laughs) grossed 251 million dollars that's more than solo was going to gross in its entire run and this is 2018 that we're talking about adjusted for inflation batman would have grossed 576 million yeah it won art direction (laughs) go ahead Field of Dreams in its initial release, it said uh, gross seventy million at the box office. So, so that's, that's a big that's difference there. That's pretty good. Um, so that would be nineteenth. Uh, and it's funny. What are you looking forward to, Uncle Drew? Well, in 1989, we had Uncle Buck. <laughs> what a great John Candy film. <laughs> <laughs> we also had a couple other great comedies. We had Christmas Vacation. That is a classic. And we had When Harry Met Sally. So I saw that in the movie theater multiple times and I had to sneak in because I wasn't of age. So this was at a time. So I would have been in eighth or ninth grade this year. And uh, I went to see the movie with my parents. And then I went to school and I said to everybody, oh, my God, you got to see this movie. It's amazing. And so then we figured out you could buy a ticket to a movie that's like next door. And then you could like sneak into the movie you want to see. So I think I saw that two or three times in the movie theater. Oh, wow. And was it, do you think that it is worthy of a Best Picture over Field of Dreams? But it wasn't nominated for Best Picture, right? No. No, I mean, I think that movie is is so much better than Field of Dreams, so I would say yes. (laughs) I'd agree with that. What about the fifth movie on this list of top grossing films, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? Oh, such a good movie. I did not see that in the movie theater. Oh, my God. But I did see Honey, I Shrunk the Audience in Disney World. Yep. (laughs) In 4D. (laughs) I used to get so freaked out watching that movie with the big ant. (laughs) Isn't there a giant Cheerio? Yes, there's a giant Cheerio. And I used to eat Cheerios like by the fistful, just dry Cheerios. (laughs) 
it and explains I just a lot about you. And suck on them. That it, it's all I need to know about you, Matt, to confirm all my suspicions. Well, <laughs> so wait, that was that was the number five movie. Yeah. Can you what are what? Can you tell us what six through ten are really quickly? Sure, but let me tell you what number four is first. It's the John Travolta Bruce Willis hit. Look who's talking. <laughs> I saw that in the movie theater. You did not. I totally did. I and have now I've never heard of this movie. And now I'm thinking that what I used to do at this stage in my life is I would cut out the movie advertisements from the newspaper and tape them to my school notebook. Oh, not, like as you saw them or just as a decorative thing? Just as a decorative thing. Things I wanted to see or things that I saw. Yeah. I did not. I think cool. my did parents you have just pass gave me money to do whatever I wanted. Year. We'll have to ask my sister about that. But I think that's what the thing uh, that seems like that's what I did. Because I, yeah, I wasn't making any money. So. Well, we're going to have her on the next episode. <laughs> yeah, so I kind of jumped around a little bit. So I'll just run through 1 through 10 real quick. Batman was number 1. Last Crusade 2. Lethal Weapon 2 was 3. <laughs> not, not confusing at all. Look Who's Talking was 4. Shrunk the Kids 5. Then we have Back to the Future Part 2 as number 6. Ghostbusters 2, 7. Driving Miss Daisy was 8. Clocking it at 106 million. And then the last movie, number 9, to gross over 100 million that year was Parenthood with um, Steve I Martin. I saw that, that in the movie theater, yeah. And what so was yeah, so I saw, I mean, so I guess I would have just been drawn to sort of like the most popular movies of that year. So some of them just randomly going down the list that we would recognize. Number 23 was Pet Cemetery. Number 24 was The Abyss, the James Cameron film. You saw those, so you saw those last two. I snuck into Pet Cemetery. That was rated R. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, there was another baseball movie, Major League, which is another really popular movie with Charlie Sheen. Uh, Star Trek V, The Final Frontier? No. Uh, Bill and Ted's Excell Excellent Adventure was number 32. They're remaking the that. Which they are remaking <laughs> in L.A. right now. Uh, Three Fugitives, Nick Nolte and Martin Short. Okay. And then we have um, Weekend at Bernie's, number 39. I think I saw that. And uh, one of our listeners can do a really good Bernie, which Bob just did. It wasn't as good as the one that one of our listeners I'm sitting in a chair, all right? Well, Bob, do you, you know. Bob, do you know that I was cast as Bernie in uh, David Elperin's film for this semester? Uh, that that his the characters in his movie watch Weekend at Bernie's two, and so it was. I, I suggested to him that instead of trying to deal with copyright issues, that they should just film some type of scene and they can watch it, thinking that. And I volunteered to play Bernie, so I'm like sitting in a chair and I'm dead. <laughs> so, I don't understand how they made a Weekend at Bernie's two great movie like the body like the body wouldn't rot since weekend at bernie's one yeah is it is it a new dead person no it's the same guy no it's a, it's the same guy isn't there there's a scene where like they play there's like a bunch of black people find him and they play rap music and they're all just like dancing <laughs> it's one of the most iconic scenes in cinema i love it but they also what was it rick and morty has the weekend at that uh, dead cat ladies <laughs> part two where there's like a bunch of cats making this dead lady like and there's a romantic comedy and this guy's falling in love with her and making out with this dead corpse oh it's so funny that sounds very and she's romantic. just like opening her mouth and going meow <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, before we get too carried away, let's go ahead and pick our year for next week. We're in the 1980s, and we will be traveling to 1986. So let's play another round of Can You Guess the Movie, Keith? (laughs) This one is the winner from that year. It is an Oliver Stone movie with Charlie Sheen and Willem Dafoe. That would be Platoon. Okay, good. One for one. Uh, Ding, ding, ding! This one stars William Hurt, Marley Matlin, and Piper Laurie. Children of a Lesser God. Very good. Ding, 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 ding! Let's go for three. Robert De Niro and Jeremy Irons star in this British period drama film. Robert De Niro and Jeremy Irons. British period drama. Age of Innocence. No, that's not right. That's older. That's newer. I really don't know this one. Okay. It's about the experiences of a Jesuit missionary in 18th century South America. Like, what? (laughs) It's called The Mission. mission. Okay. Yeah. Um, Maggie Smith, Judy Dench, Helen Bonham Carter in this 1985 British romance film directed by James Ivory. No idea. I, I don't know how old Bonham Carter was in this, but it is A Room with a View. Okay. And then we have a Woody Allen-directed movie. 1986? Is it yes. Hannah, and her, Hannah and Her Sisters? Yes, very good. <laughs> nice job. What a cast this had. Michael Caine, Mia, uh, Mia Farrow, Carrie Fisher, and Diane Weist. So let's go ahead and take our final break. East, come back and... I thought you said Weist. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back and finish up here on the podcast goes to. What kind of compass you reading there, laddie? <laughs> talk about the ending that makes sense okay james girls <laughs> james girl james girl jones james girl jones is like that's a, what i'm gonna call that'd be a funny like comeback line for like a woman who do you think you are james girl jones that'd be funny <laughs> to say to rashida jones <laughs> good job matt what? And we are back here on the podcast goes to talking about Field of Dreams, wrapping things up here uh, with Bob and Keith. So let's talk about this ending because it it pulls out and you see thousands, like a thousand cars pulling into the driveway to, I guess, watch people play baseball, even though the players had called it a night already. But what a logistical nightmare that must have been trying to park all those cars if you're the family of this tiny farm. And um, must so have been pro- interesting to do So production-wise, they um, required the whole town of Dyersville to go dark and for everybody in the town to turn off their lights so they could oh. shoot that final scene. All six of them? <laughs> yeah. Bob, would be the, Bob would be the one being like, damn it, I'm keeping my TV on. That's what he would talk like if that's, he was in 1989 Iowa. I mean, that's, that's Iowa Bob for you. 
I do have a really good friend out in Des Moines, Iowa. Shout out to Elise, who probably doesn't listen to this podcast, but a wonderful writer, and we're working on a project together. Anyway, go on. <laughs> so it must have been a, it must have been a little bit of a nightmare if you. So they basically got everyone in the town to drive their cars to this field and park them with their lights on. They were fifteen hundred cars, and they had a blackout, and they had a helicopter, and they filmed that last shot with a helicopter. But what I was saying on our break is that I guess we just assume as the audience that that means that all their money troubles are over because we really don't get any closure in the fact that they're losing the farm. Right. So the brother's like bullying them into selling the farm, but then he never signs the papers. So I guess it's like they're just going to get money from all these people who seem to have been brainwashed into showing up. Like, but the brother, it's very confusing. At the end, the brother, once he sees the baseball players, he's like, oh, this place is special. We can't get rid of your house. So I guess he's just selling the farm and he's keeping the house, like the deal that he was originally going to make. I feel like he's not selling anything. But like financially, he can't do that. I, I guess if he gets enough money, he can. Yeah, but it's already too late, right? The bank was already going to foreclose. Like, those cars came after that. They they came too late. Yeah, this is why, you know, again, like, there's no closure, and which, you know, is it makes me laugh at myself because a lot of times, especially in the intro uh, Film 101 classes, a lot of times when the movie doesn't have a tied-up ending, the students sort of, like, lose their minds. But I just feel like this is the type of movie that seems, that should, seems like it should have a beginning, middle, and end, and I feel like it leaves all these things it's very confusing it's not one of those movies where it's like interpreted as you wish there are many meanings it's like it is sort of a traditional structured story but it just there's a lot of holes in in what we're presented yeah like is james Joel jones a ghost <laughs> we never really know like we don't know how all those people were able to just get there at the same time. And <laughs> we're all pulling in at the end of the day. The brother suddenly sees the ghosts but didn't see them before. How? I don't understand. Um, yeah, so... Yeah, I guess. Um, I looked up some reviews to try and see what, what people generally thought. Um, this guy, Michael Will. Uh, Wilmington from the Los Angeles Times agrees with us. He said, all of this would work better if Robinson, who's the director, built up the reality of the town more, which is what you said, um, made the citizens a more palpable presence as Frank Capra did in It's a Wonderful Life. Um, this other guy says, a ball game classic, a sentimental nonsense movie, but charmingly so, Jane Crother, total film. It did have a certain charm to it. I think James Earl Jones... Is charming, but uh, it definitely was nonsense. It was nonsense, yeah. And I felt like the performances were really bad too, just cheesy, awful, like bad timing. I, 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 I don't know. It was just bad. You know what's really interesting is that today, while I was cleaning, I put on the view from yesterday, and guess who the guest was? Kevin Costner, yeah. And he talked about how people his his body of work is so vast that people come up to him and sort of mention a movie and he's sort of glad that there's so many movies that he made that resonate with people that, you know, he feels like he's been successful in his career because 
every person could say a different movie, like Robin Hood or The Bodyguard or Waterworld or uh, Dances with Wolves or whatever. And but no, and I was like, they're going to mention Field of Dreams here, and they did not. So, um, well, he did. This isn't even on, the only baseball movie he's done. He's done three, I think. Bull Durham. And he did Rookie, Rookie, The Rookie, right? I think that's Dennis Quaid. Oh, that was Dennis Quaid. Another bland oh. actor. Similar age. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's... They are very similar. So, <laughs> so overall, not one of our favorite movies of this, of this segment, but maybe next week we will get a, a better movie. Are we ready to pick our movie for next well, week? Well, can I say one thing? I would love to know for, for all the millions of people listening to this podcast, if they've seen this movie, like what what resonates with them about this? Because, you know, again, I would probably guess that it was the ending, but I, I don't know. And I'd love to know that. Yeah. So if you want to weigh in, hit us up on the Facebook page. Um, or, you know, you can go ahead and send us an audio clip and we'll play it on a show. Or hit me know, up on better. Instagram at barbecue chicken. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so trying to get those followers. Uh, I'll have to get some feedback for our next episode. So, speaking of our next episode, we will be discussing one of these five films. It will either be A Room with a View, The Mission, Hannah and Her Sisters, Children of a Lesser God, or the winner of that year, Platoon. And next week, the podcast goes to... It is the... Robert De Niro, Jeremy Irons classic, The Mission. Also starring Liam Neeson. (laughs) I have a specific set of skills. That's my Liam Neeson voice that sounds nothing like Liam Neeson. (laughs) Wonderful. (laughs) Great. So don't know anything about that movie. So we will have to go ahead and do some research for next week. And uh, bring you another episode. Who knows if Keith will return, but we will find out in a few days. Hope you all join us next week on the Podcast Coast 2.